I'm Bob Dickey, and welcome to another episode of Taking the Leap Podcast. My guest today is J.P. Seacott. J.P. is the branch leader for Movement Mortgage in Littleton, Colorado, and he is passionate about helping every client find the ideal loan package for their home or investment property. He is best known for his short, insightful, mustache mortgage minutes videos on LinkedIn and Instagram. JP is a graduate of the United States Air Force Academy and was a track and field athlete while he was a cadet. He also served in the United States Air Force for over 23 years as a navigator of the RC-135 and C-130 aircraft, having multiple deployments around the globe. He also completed his MBA in finance from the University of Colorado. You know, everyone knows that home ownership and understanding real estate is a foundational tenant in building wealth. The market today is very dynamic at the moment with interest rates fluctuating and home prices on the move. Everyone I meet from young people starting out looking for their very first home to mid-career professionals looking to move or maybe purchase a vacation home and even late career professionals considering downsizing or moving to their retirement destination, everyone seems to be talking about real estate. I could not wait to have this conversation with JP and hear his insights on the market and advice for those ready to make the leap. I know you're going to learn something new in this conversation, so let's jump right in. Well, JP, my friend, I tell you what, it has been a long time since we've been together. We've just been chatting for a few minutes, and I think the last time we were in person was at Squadron Officer School, and that's been a couple years ago. We're we're, we're both a little bit older and probably uh, not as fast as we used to be. Of course, you're a stellar Air Force Academy track and field star, and I, I ran at the University of Tennessee, so we had some good runs there at Squadron Officer School. But uh, I tell you what, one of the things that I have really enjoyed watching over the last uh, little bit is you're now in uh, Denver, Colorado, and you have the Mustache Mortgage Minute. You've been doing these videos and posting them on LinkedIn. I've been following, and it is incredible content. And so I just want, I want to, I can't wait to dive in and ask you a bunch of questions about what's going on. But, you know, first and foremost, as a longtime friend and as a veteran and Air Force guy, I just want to uh, say thank you for taking a couple minutes to be on the podcast with us today. Of course, Bob. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I, I just started the Mustache Mortgage Minute beginning of the year. It was good. The mortgage industry had slowed down a little bit, and everybody had been encouraging me to do the social media thing and do short format. I guess reels are the new thing, so I kind of jumped in with both feet. Since you've been following me, I guess you probably noticed the progression uh, from the beginning. I didn't have a microphone or a good camera. Um, my editing skills were were subpar, and then uh, kind of over time developed it, and now we've got a pretty good rhythm. and just come up with new content every week. I do love the short format, like little nuggets of info that everybody can use and that people pay attention to. I don't know that I could do long format things and keep people's attention with the topic of mortgage. Well, you you certainly have captivated my attention. Every single time I see one come out, I make sure to to watch it and listen to it. There's multiple times where I've taken a couple of notes and uh, my wife and I are uh, in the market. We, we, we're, we've been dreaming about uh, some property and some things that we want to do. And so I've, I've been using you as a, uh, an education tool to make sure that I'm doing all the right things. And I know that we've got probably a lot of listeners who are thinking about getting into the market. I'm thinking of my, my daughter and her uh, husband who just got married uh, this year and they're just getting started out in their career. And, you know, they've been asking questions. And then I I have multiple friends who are either mid-career professionals who are thinking about uh, either moving to a different location here in the United States or maybe even buying a vacation property. And that's kind of where my wife and I are at. We're looking at a couple places around the country for a vacation property. And then, of course, you know, I've got uh, friends who are also getting close to retirement and thinking about, you know, selling their home, downsizing, moving into retirement community. But, uh, you know, this is such an important aspect of the American economy and for any American to build wealth. I'd love for you just to take as much time as you need uh, to tell our listeners, you know, what's going on in the American real estate market, uh, the mortgage market? What do you see high level? And then let's unpack it for these various user groups who might be making a pretty big and substantial decision for them and their family. Yeah, for sure. I'd like to touch base real quick on the high interest rate environment and the lack of affordability right now. I know it's it's pretty daunting 
to hear rates in the sevens, right? Because mm-hmm. they, it's been so long since they've been that high. But if you go back far enough, 40 years or so, four or 7% is pretty much a historical average. We just got lucky over the last decade or so where they've been in the three, four, five 5% range, even like dipped into the twos during the pandemic a little bit. Now, I don't see rates ever getting back down in the twos minus some sort of calamity like a pandemic or world war or anything like that. But I do see economic circumstances where the Fed will manipulate it enough. We should be down in the fives at least, maybe dip into the fours if we do hit a recession. But right now, with the lack of affordability, um, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of pent-up demand. Let me talk about demographics for a second. So the millennials are right in the largest three birth years for millennials are the next three years or 30 years out from the largest three birth years for millennials and 30 years is about that household formation age Mm -hmm. so there is a ton of demand coming from that generation for home buying they want a piece of the american dream right they Mm -hmm. want to raise their family in a house that being said not a lot of them are buying right now I have dozens of pre-approved buyers, especially in that demographic, that are waiting for rates to go down. So right now, real estate market's pretty slow. There's not a lot of inventory because people are kind of handcuffed in their home with that 2 and 3% interest rate. So it doesn't make sense to move. And builders are not keeping up with demand. So we've got, a, even though there aren't a lot of people buying, a severe lack of inventory is still causing a pretty even uh, real estate market there's okay. some deals out there you can get for under asking you can get closing costs paid and there's some people that are with with really nice homes who are still getting a little over asking and mm-hmm. a couple people in a bidding war so it's a really balanced market right now however once rates do go down and i think the five percent threshold is that where we're really going to see the big tidal wave of demand especially from millennials it's going to make affordability a little better and when i say five percent i mean the interest rate starting with a five. Like as soon as we dip into the fives, I think there's going to be a tidal wave of demand, and that, but no more inventory. So it's going to go back to that seller's market we saw in 20 and 21 during the pandemic, where everyone was just going uh, crazy. There were 30 offers on every listing, 50, 100k over asking, um, appraisal gaps, inspection waivers, all that kind of thing. So I really kind of am encouraging my um, people who are looking to buy in the next year, I suggest you do it, but I think this is coming next spring is where either organically the market's going to, you know, inflation's t- already showing signs of taming. We saw yesterday CPI mm-hmm. the month over month is what I look at, not the annual. Okay. It, it was only 0.2, which annualizes 2.4, which is really close to the Fed's target rate of 2%. So, we really need, I'm encouraging people to get in now, take the higher rate now. You can always refinance into the lower rate that people are going to get six months from now or a year from now. I mean, I can't, I don't have a crystal ball on the right. rates, right? I'm just, yeah. I think it'll be next spring, but take that with a grain of salt. Yeah. The, but get in, the point is get in now at the home you want for the price you want uh, when there aren't 30 offers and you're not, paying over and then you can always refine at that lower rate later that way you get the home you want the price you want and the rate that everybody that's waiting is eventually going to get i heard you give that advice in one of your videos i was like wow that's really spot on i hadn't thought about that but you know we're we're seeing that here in the the market in knoxville and i guess there's there's various communities or places around the country that have really picked up a lot of population uh, uh, post pandemic and Tennessee is one of those locations where we just have a flood of people coming in from California, Chicago, uh, the Northeast, uh, you know, low state, you know, no state income tax, low taxes and cost of living overall, pretty good quality of life. Um, I call it the free South, but I mean, there's just, there's so many people who are just moving in and, you know, and and that's the, the challenge that we've had here is you know when someone's in the market looking there's just so many people putting offers in right and so it's bidding it up and i can imagine it's only going to get worse in the spring because i agree with you it does look like the the realtors i'm talking to here in the local area like man we're seeing where those interest rates are going to come down and like this coming spring it's going to be unbelievable so 
It's great advice. What else would you say? What other things are you seeing as you're keeping your finger on the pulse of the economy? You, you, you kind of, um, what other forecasts do you have? Besides that one? Yeah. Yikes. Uh, I mean, that's my biggest one. I still, I mean, obviously still believe in real estate as long-term wealth and, and getting in now, but I do see, uh, really long-term, mm-hmm. I think we're actually going to see a crash in the market because after the millennials, I noticed Gen Z, and even the millennials are like delaying household formation, mm-hmm. like Gen and not getting married at the same rate we did, mm-hmm. Gen Xers or even, right. um, or even the baby boomers before us. Yeah. And so, uh, that is going to be a like decreased demand in single mm-hmm. family homes. I think there's going to be a bigger increase. I think we're going to move to the multifamily as being the more dominant um, housing thing, especially as people, as there are fewer house formations and more people living single lives or alternative mm-hmm. lifestyles and that kind of thing. I think long, long term, uh, that's going to hurt us. But short term, I mean, the millennial generation is still in their prime home buying years and they're going to keep pressure on the single family housing market for the oh. really for the next three to five years. That's a really interesting insight. I, uh, hadn't thought about that, but I will tell you that the first time that I ever experienced living in an area where multi-generational families were living together in mass was when I was, obviously when I was in the Air Force and I uh, was tra- uh, stationed in uh, Honolulu, Hawaii. And I, I don't know what it was, maybe it was because real estate prices there are so high. And you also have a a, mult, uh, a melting pot of all these various cultures from around the Pacific. But multi-family, multi-generational family living in, in Hawaii was commonplace. And I, I couldn't believe it. I, I hadn't experienced that before. But so do you see that that's, you, you, or you just you made the prediction that you, you feel that this might be something that's coming in the future. Do you, do you forecast that maybe uh, building in neighborhoods and cities and things are going to be changing in the future as demographics change? And it's like kind of like a, a, a different way of, of living. Yeah, for sure. And, and I really, well, what I meant by multifamily wasn't necessarily multi-generational. I meant more uh, apartment buildings, townhomes, gotcha. that okay. kind of thing versus the, the larger single family home okay. for like two person households and, uh, and that kind of thing. Okay. Thanks That's for the clarity. Okay. That. Yeah, exactly. Well, one of the other things that you highlighted earlier was the fact that you, your belief on how important real estate is for the average American in terms of building wealth. And I think that sometimes that that can be, you know, misunderstood. And I thought you had some brilliant insights on the, the, the ways in which a person, the middle-class American can use real estate to really be the foundational building block to build, to build wealth. Could you, you know, unpack that a little bit? Yeah. Well, one of my favorite sayings goes along, like when was the best time to plant a tree 20 years ago? When's the next best time? Today, yeah. I, I feel the exact same way about purchasing real estate. The best time, obviously, was 20 years ago. The next best time is today. Just to start building that real estate portfolio. Obviously, start out with a with your primary residence, and then from there, just save up and even tap into the equity of that property to buy your next investment property, because it really is the safest investment that you can um, leverage. So. With traditional equities, you invest, let's say, $20,000 in the stock market, you get your 7% historical return, Mm -hmm. right? The great thing about real estate, even though real estate historically only appreciates at 4%, you're not buying cash for that. So your $20,000 investment in a $200,000 home ends up being 10x uh, of the 4%. You're Mm -hmm. really a 40% return on your money just through appreciation and that asset. So it, it really is a great way to re- leverage your investment on a really, really safe asset. So what would you um, recommend? Let's say we're giving some advice. Let's just pretend my, my daughter and her uh, uh, husband is, are sitting here with us today and you're kind of coaching them up. You're giving them some advice for as they're out there looking for their first home. Um, he's in medical school, so we have no idea where he's going to be at his next location, but I know that they're already thinking, right? They're making notes. They're, they're, they're eyeing a couple of lo- locations, Charleston, South Carolina being one of them, Knoxville, Tennessee, but how should they be preparing? Um, knowing that there's going to, th- that they want to purchase a home and maybe in the next year or two, how, how would you coach them up? Well, number one piece of advice 
that I'm giving millennials because a lot of them want to buy their dream home today. Mm-hmm. Nobody started out in their dream home. I started out with an apartment, yeah. right, or a condo, and then moved up to a townhome, finally a single-family home. So that would be my advice is get into whatever they can um, and not necessarily – think it's going to be that they're going to own it for the next 10 years. I think they should go with in with the mindset that we are going to keep this as a rental property mm-hmm. and then move to the next home that our family needs, you know, if their family does grow or whatever, and then onto the, eventually the dream home they want to raise their family in. Mm-hmm. So yeah, don't go manage expectations, but definitely get in the market. Something that's going to be convenient um, that's going to house them. I mean, cause I'm assuming no kiddos yet, right? right? Yeah. No, no kiddos yet. Yeah, exactly. So that's a couple. Yeah. Oh, one or two bedroom, uh, condo or townhouse is a great way to start and just something that's convenient and close to work for them or school for mm-hmm. him. Now, since they're, uh, starting out and you are, uh, you, you specialize in helping people with their mortgages, what should people be thinking about doing in terms of making sure they've got the proper credit scores and, you know, that you, you hear, um, what all the various things that people are walking into your office and are there mistakes that people make when they're coming in and you're like, Oh my gosh, I wish you would have known you should have done this, or this is how you should have prepared. If you are about ready to purchase a home, what are the wise things that they can be doing right now to make sure that they're walking in fully prepared, ready to go? Yeah. The first thing is don't go to a realtor first. It's counterintuitive. Most people go to a real estate agent first and they, you know, ask about the communities, have them showing property that your first stop has to be a mortgage professional in your area that, that knows the market that can take a full application. Look at your credit. I love it when people come to me when they're about 90 days out, that's the perfect time. So that if there are any credit issues, we have time to address them. We can get them fixed in that time frame and get them prepared mm-hmm. and in the best possible and most competitive situation when they do go to make an offer. That's interesting. I hadn't, been told ever that someone ought to go to a, a loan originator or a mortgage professional first before the realer, right? So that, can you unpack that a little bit? Just what's what's going on there? Why, why is that the number one stop? Because I, I, I'll tell you personally, I've done it wrong my entire career. I've always had, I've always had a buddy who's or uh, you know someone who's been in real estate. We're like, hey, I'm, we're in the market. Let's go, right? Yeah. Well, uh, you're not alone. That's most people, right? I get probably more than half my business is from realtor partners that send their clients to me. But after they're already on a property drip or they've already showed them stuff, the worst is when they're, they come to me, the first time they come to me, they're already under contract. And then I'm like, well, I guess we got to make this work. Right. Right. But the beauty of going to a a mortgage professional first to a, you know, get you prepared savings wise, like, and show you the numbers. Like Mm -hmm. people don't realize what their payment's going to look like. A lot of people just do simple principal and interest calculations, but there's also homeowner's insurance included in there. Mm -hmm. If you're in a floodplain flood insurance, uh, there's also county taxes. Mm -hmm. So property taxes are in there. So it's not, and if you put less than 20%, there's going to be PMI. Mm -hmm. So you're going to want to see what that monthly payment looks like at different price points. A lot of times I'll ask my clients, Hey, what would, what's an ideal payment for you? And then I'll reverse engineer and what's your down payment. Mm-hmm. What's an ideal payment. And I'll reverse engineer a purchase price. I like, here's the price range you, you should be looking in. If you want approximately that, whatever, $3,000 a month payment. Gotcha. So that's all things. Cause I, I hate it when people are looking at a certain price point and once we do the application i'm like well you actually qualify a little bit lower but now they've seen all these beautiful homes larger homes mm-hmm. and they're having to manage expectations and they're it's difficult for them so i i do prefer when they come to me first they have a great idea of what they're going to need both as down payment and monthly payment and then they can adjust their home search home search accordingly. You said something here a second ago in terms of if a person doesn't put down 20% on, on the home, then they're going to end up having to uh, do PMI or the mortgage insurance, right? So 
let's talk a little bit about that. Are, are, do you have recommendations? You know, sometimes uh, a first-time home buyer, maybe they don't have 20, 20% saved up for that down payment. And I remember one of the uh, first homes that I, I purchased when Brandy and I were just getting started, and I believe we had PMI on it for a little bit, and I didn't like writing a check that I knew wasn't going towards equity or, you know, print the principal. What's your recommendation for young people who are starting out? Do you try, do you uh, encourage them to try to get that 20% down, uh, down? And I think if I'm not mistaken, if you qualify for a VA loan, don't they sometimes waive PMI on some VA loans or am I, is that incorrect? All VA loans. Yeah, there is no PMI on VA loans. Okay. That's one of the benefits of being a veteran. And it truly is a benefit. I love the VA mortgage product. It's the number one, loan because zero down payment, no PMI. So it, it really is does help vets, especially with their first home get in. There is a VA funding fee associated, but you're allowed to finance it. So you actually end up getting more like a slightly over 100% financing on your first. So it's a great way to get in. And VA rates tend to be a little bit lower than conventional rates because it is backed by the VA. Okay. And so less risk for the investors, which means lower interest rate. But back, sorry, we got to backtrack yeah, to your first yeah. question on PMI. So PMI or private mortgage insurance, um, it basically protects the lender. It, it's an insurance policy you have to get on a mortgage that protects the lender in a case of default. And anytime you put less than 20% down, you have to buy it. Back in the old, in the day, when I first started in the industry, PMI was actually pretty expensive regardless. And it does, is based on your, two factors, your loan to value. Mm -hmm. So there's a certain rate if you go 3% down, which you can for first time homebuyers, or 5% down, 10% down, or 15% down. Those are all different rates. And it also is now a factor of your credit score. That didn't used to be the case. It used to just be loan to value. Okay. But now that it's loan to value and credit score, if you have excellent credit and put even 10% down, PMI is really low, under okay. hundred bucks a month. Okay. And definitely worth, uh, you know, still making that purchase. It's okay. not a big impact on your monthly payment, and you're still going to more than make it up with appreciation. Yeah. So I, I don't. I would prefer. It'll actually cost you more, and I did do a mustache mortgage on this. It, it okay. costs you more ultimately to save up for three years to get to that twenty percent, mm -hmm. because that's three years of appreciation on homes than it is to just buy it. At, three or 5% down and capture that appreciation and pay a little bit more monthly. Wow. That's great advice. Okay. So th those are some things that young people starting out or maybe, you know, first time home buyers need to consider. What about, what's the importance of your credit score on the interest rate? My understanding is that that can impact your interest rate pretty substantially. So what are there little tricks or tips or things that people can be doing to really, you know, kind of gussy up their credit score uh, as they are you know preparing to come in and get a, a mortgage from you yeah for sure well one of the misnomers in credit is everybody thinks you start out at 800 or 840 and then bad things you do hurt your credit score but it's actually more like you start around 700 and your history of on-time payments increases your score your length of credit history that kind of thing and then missing payments or high uh, debt utilization, short credit history, all hurt your credit score. So it's kind of a, a balancing act, right? I mean, we all know the basics. Obviously, pay your bills on time, uh, you know, no late payments, no collections, no defaults. That's Those are the big rocks. But the smaller, less obvious rocks are debt utilization. So a lot of people will have low balance credit cards. Mm -hmm. And even though they pay them off every month, because it's only a $1,500 limit credit card and they put a few tanks of gas and some groceries and incidentals on there, they're up at $1,200, $1,300 a month. And that looks like you're highly leveraged based on the limits. So that, because you're over 50% and shoot over 75% really does damage. And um, it looks like you're not effectively uh, managing your credit, even though in reality you're being responsible and paying them off every month. So it, it's just a visibility thing. So I do look at that, make sure people aren't um, highly leveraged on their credit cards. And there's two ways to, to tackle that problem. Uh, just call your credit card company and say, hey, can you increase my limit? And boom, automatically without even paying it off, it, you go from 75% to 
but are a 30% debt mm-hmm. utilization because they bumped your, your loan up a few grand. Okay. So there's little things like that. Credit history too, don't close accounts just because you're not using. Like if you have a Home Depot card you've had for 10 years, but you haven't used it in the last year, like, oh, I'm just going to close that. Sometimes it'll hurt you because it'll shorten your length of credit history. Wow. So, okay. Yeah. So yeah. you like you like some of those those cards being open for a long period of time, even though you're not using them. Yep. Okay. Exactly. Yep. They're not hurting you. Just sitting in your uh, in in the drawer. Okay. And and so I mean, if it's one you did open a few years ago and you have a long credit history, I mean, there's obviously nuances. Go ahead and close it. It's not going to do anything. But if it's a older, long-standing account, it's better to just keep it open so you keep that length of credit history high. This is uh, a great advice. Words of wisdom for young people getting started out. All right, so let's pivot uh, a little bit to maybe someone who is mid-career, or maybe they're they're looking for their first vacation home. Um, they want they want a mountain home. I know you've got a place there in Colorado, and uh, I've got friends that have beach homes down on the beach. And so when you're looking to um, you know purchase a home that or a vacation home, and maybe you're even going to rent it out on Airbnb. Uh, I saw one of your mustache mortgage minutes where you said that you could actually use the planned revenue that that's going to be generating uh, when you, for loan origination and when you're for the purchase, right? That you can count that towards the revenue that you're going to be making off of that property, which helps you. So, what what advice would you give for somebody who's looking at purchasing maybe a, a second home, vacation home? Yeah. So my advice is. If you're going to be using it as a second home and renting it out, definitely go with the mindset you're buying a second home and then you're going to use the short-term rental as a way to offset the cost. Don't plan on cash flowing a second home that you're going to use a lot. Okay. Well, that's the way we went. It. We short-term rent our place in Breckenridge. So, uh, and I don't ever try to, to make money on it. I'm just trying to, not make that entire mortgage payment myself every month when we only go up, you know, a weekend or two a month. So, so just to have that mindset is my number one piece of advice. And then, yeah, look for something you're going to enjoy long-term that has some rental potential. And, and that way the, the numbers don't have to a hundred percent work, but as long as they're offsetting your vacation home, it's a hundred percent worth it. Cool. And I, Definitely classify it with your loan originator as an investment property, even if you're going to use it as a second second home. Okay. It used to be rates were a little better on second home purchases and down payment requires were lower. But for a second home, you don't get to use projected rental income towards qualifying. If you classify it as an investment property, you do get to use projected rental income as qualifying income, okay. which will help you qualify for more or a larger place. Nice. Since you uh, opened the door on you running your property out a little bit, do you have a favorite platform that you use? Do you use VRBO, Airbnb? I mean, is, is there one that's better than the other? I mean, from a uh, an end user like yourself, or you, uh, what advice would you give there? Yeah, define better, right? Yeah. So uh, my wife actually manages it. Okay. We self-manage through Airbnb and VRBO. Okay. So we, we run both. Um, there are pluses and minuses to both. The platform on Airbnb is better. Okay. I mean, their their text just a little bit better. And I think we there's a little more volume. There's more people that use Airbnb than VRBO. However, the thing we don't like about Airbnb, they are very guest-centric. Like whenever there is an issue, they always side on the the renter, Mm -hmm. not the property owner. Uh, VRBO is a little more clunky, but I really do like um, the tools and the attitude of VRBO. Like when someone destroys your property, VRBO punishes the renter, not the the property owner. So they tend to, VRBO is definitely more uh, property owner focused than in all on the side of the property owner, VRBO could care less about you and they're just using you to make money. So, okay. And it's pretty obvious. They care about the the visitor and not the property owner. Nice. All right. That's interesting. I hadn't, I didn't know that previously. All right. So you've given us some good tips and anything else on uh, a person looking for that second home or vacation home, anything, any other tips that you can think of before we move on to maybe someone who's going to be a retiree and maybe downsizing. Yeah. 
yeah, vacation home. I don't know. Just pick somewhere you love, right? Somewhere you're gonna you're gonna be for a while. Because if you end up not liking it or enjoying it or using it a bunch, or if it doesn't rent enough, you, you may not be able to get your investment out or be able to exit without losing a little bit of money because real estate costs are pretty, you know, yeah. listing costs are pretty high. Okay. Let's pivot to the the individuals who are nearing retirement. Maybe they're thinking about downsizing. They got way too big of a house. That that's going to be me and you. You've got five kids. I've got six kids, right? So when Brandy and I are empty nesters, we're we're not going to need a big house. We're going to look for something a smaller footprint. We don't have to clean so many rooms. Uh, maybe we're looking to move to a retirement community, right? Want to pl- do a little uh, shuffleboard and uh, play bingo in the afternoons or something. I don't know. I don't know what, what retirees do, but um, what advice when, when those types of individuals are walking into your office, what are some of the things that they're missing or um, questions that they should have been asking a few years in advance, pl- things that they're unprepared or uh, areas where they're like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize this, right? So e- educate me. You're, you're, you're my buddy. Educate me. Say, hey, Bob, you're going to be going through this process here in a few years. Here's what you need to be thinking about right now so you're making wise decisions and preparing the right way. Yeah, well, then the, the number one, I've had a few recently walk in. Right now is a, a terrible time for people that have a larger home and refinanced uh, in the last couple of years and got those two and 3% rates. And so they're used to a certain payment based on the value of their home. Uh, just as an example, I won't give any names, but I had, there's people that came into my office. They own a 1.2 large, $1.2 million home, recent empty nesters wanted to downsize to an $800,000 condo. So you would think, Hey, lower payment, and everything, but they owed, um, I think they owed 900 on their their primary, so they were only they were going to clear less than 300 in equity for a down payment. So they were still borrowing 500 on the purchase of their condo. And when we ran the numbers at today's interest rates, plus they were moving into a condo that had a kind of hefty, it was a nicer condo, kind of hefty HOA. When we looked at it, the payment was actually going to be higher, even though they were theoretically downsizing and they weren't prepared for that. So they ended up just staying put and waiting for rates to come down. Luckily, you're not looking to do this today, Bob. So a few years from now, uh, my number one advice is don't don't treat your primary home as a piggy bank um, because they took some cash out. Uh, bought an RV, <laughs> bought and did some renovations, and so that's why they're. Even though they were older and had owned the prop, they've owned the property for thirty years, but they hadn't. They'd kind of used their equity as a piggy bank, mm. and that's what made the downsizing process a little less um, palatable for them, given the current interest rate environment. But fingers crossed, interest rates won't be as bad, and hopefully, you won't have tapped too much of your equity for other projects. Not that it doesn't always make sense. Um, I'm not saying never use your equity, but if you are reaching that end point where you do want to downsize and need that equity to keep the payment on your uh, retirement home low, Mm -hmm. then that's when you want to quit tapping that equity and build as much as you can. This is uh, a great segue into another question, which is I've been hearing economists uh, talk about how the U.S. economy has been kind of motoring through relatively unscathed. And it was, and many people were a little bit surprised that we didn't have uh, some more turmoil. And these economists have been pointing to the fact that um, many Americans have been using the equity in their homes to kind of cover expenses, they've been using it as a, uh, like a credit card. Uh, you you get these you know mailers all the time. You're hearing people talk uh, you know on the news or on the radio. It's like, hey, here here's this HELOC and here here's this. You know, tap into your equities. Talk about the because uh, th- this right now it's happening at a, a, a an alarming rate around the country where American homeowners are tapping into that equity to pay bills, pay down debt. Uh, what are the common ways? in which they are doing that. Is there, if you have to do it, is there one way that's better than another? And uh, yeah, give me, give me a little bit more, you know, insight on that. Yeah. Right now, a cash out refinance is not a good way to tap the equity because you want to keep that first mortgage you have that's in the twos or threes. Mm-hmm. If it is there, even fours, because now we'd be in the sevens. Right. Mm-hmm. But the, the best way to tap the equity is a HELOC. 
And the thing I love about HELOCs is uh, that's a home equity line of credit. That's typically a bank or, and I always recommend going to a local bank or credit union for one of those. They kind of know the local area and real estate market better, and they do a better job, provide better customer service than the big banks um, or big national credit unions. They tend to do a poor job and have poorer rates. So, so anybody you have a banking relationship with, especially if it's a smaller local bank or credit union, that's the best place to go for a home equity line of credit. Okay. But that is the best way because you're not, if you take a second mortgage or do a ref, uh, cash out refinance, you're paying interest day one on money that you're not necessarily using day one. Mm-hmm. Uh, a home equity line of credit is literally that. It's a line of credit, right? So you can draw on it at any time and you can pay back on it anytime and you just pay interest on what you've drawn on for whatever project or or whatever the purchase you're making. And then since they are a little higher, well, right now they're really high, but um, because they are they tend to be variable and they're fixed to the prime rate, which is at 8.5% today. Wow. So I, I always do advocate, ad, yeah, advocate paying them off faster, like maybe accelerate the payments on that HELOC to get rid of it a little quicker and okay. then if you did want to accelerate payments on your first mortgage, do it after the HELOC's paid off. So that would, that's the way to do it. Do If you have to, do a HELOC, but pay it off as quickly as you can. And and, and yeah. if you are uh, you don't want to be carrying that around, I mean, it's, you should be tapping it for an emergency or for a quick one-time purchase, but with the game plan of, hey, I want to pay, you know, pay this back down as quickly as possible, right? Correct. Yeah. The only caveat to that is I do advocate uh, using the equity in one property to purchase more Oh Real yeah. Estate. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. So then you're just transferring, you're not actually spending the money, you're not buying a Harley or an RV mm-hmm. or anything, right? You're, uh, you're just transferring the equity from your, your primary residence to maybe a second home, right? If you don't have the cash to scratch that 20% down payment for your second home, your primary residence, if you have a ton of equity and that way you're just putting equity from one home into another and then they're both appreciating. So it still makes sense financially, even though technically you're um, tapping into the equity on your primary. Gotcha. And so you may qualify. So if you're, if you're to do this, say you get a, a HELOC like today, and let's say you said the the average rate on that might be about 8.5%. So you get your 20% out. So you're paying uh, 8.5% on that 20%. And then your, your mortgage that you would qualify for might be in the 7%, right? And then later on, let's say it's a year from now, rates, you know, come down uh, tremendously, maybe it's back down in that 5% range. You could refinance your, your base mortgage on that and slowly be paying off your HELOC, right? Right. And if you've seen some appreciation, you might even be able to take a little bit of cash out and wipe out the HELOC or a portion of it. All right. I want to pivot a little bit into your background. How did you, I mean, you served, you went to the United States Air Force Academy and that, that is a, uh, an elite institution. So you, you, you graduated from the Air Force Academy somewhere along the line in your prestigious and stellar career as a pilot in the United States Air Force, you go to the university of Colorado, get your MBA in finance. And you retire you, after 22, 23 years of service and probably a little bit longer when you're considering the four years that you spent at the Air Force Academy, because that truly is service. Unlike me at the University of Tennessee, when I went through the ROTC program, I got to be like a full-time college athlete and student. Um, you were literally being, you were in the military from day one when you were in the Air Force Academy. So you've had a long, long time serving. And w- w- what was it that drew you to this industry? Right. What, why, what were some of the things that you saw and why did you want to uh, come? I, I always love the origin story of how a person chooses their career and their career path. And I'd love to hear a little bit of that about you. All right. So uh, kind of a two prong story. First of all, I went in 2003, uh, I was kind of, went and got my MBA uh, with an emphasis in finance from the University of Colorado. And I thought I was going to go into the financial planning business and manage these large, wealthy people's portfolio and grow their wealth and be a hero for them. And then I actually uh, applied for a few jobs. This is while being in the National Guard, because the National Guard's a part-time gig, right? So you still need a full-time job. And uh, I quickly realized that uh, 
was going to be an insurance salesman because that is where the compensation structure is. Like mm-hmm. it turns out financial advisors are most compensated for selling whole life and insurance products. And they're not compensated that well for assets under management and mm-hmm. managing people's portfolios. So that was, uh, I got disenfranchised with that. And then, uh, so I actually took a year of orders in the guard and was working down at Northcom in Colorado Springs and was a international guard liaison for Northcom. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it was brutal. Uh, I was, you didn't like it. Uh, no, well, what happened was, so my wife also, uh, she was uh, state department and she took a one year remote to the middle East. Oh, no. And so I'm at home, uh, with a couple kiddos to include a one-year-old daughter and um, I'm dropping her off at daycare at 7 a.m. driving down in the Springs, uh, picking her up at 6 p. you know, driving back, picking her up at 6 p.m., then cooking dinner and putting mm-hmm. her bit like it was just a nightmare. So I'm complaining to my mortgage broker, who's a friend of mine, Gary Pierce, and we had done some charity work together, super nice guy, really connected in the community. And he's like, why don't you come do mortgages with me? Like, I don't really, he was a one man shop, he and his wife, um, and, and he didn't really have employees, but he's like, for you, you know, you're a friend, you've got your MBA, you're a numbers guy, this will be great for you. And, and that was in 2013. And he wasn't wrong. Like it, I took it like a duck to water, man, the, the numbers just made sense. Um, back then was a little mini refi boom going on mm-hmm. rates. That was the first time rates had really gone into threes ever. Okay. And so I was just calling up friends and family saying, Hey, how can I save you a couple hundred dollars? So I learned the basics of loans on refis without the real estate component or mm-hmm. without the contracts and realtors and, and all that stuff. So I got the basics of loan products down. And then, um, from there realized I needed to do more purchase business because rates went up in 2014 and Mm -hmm. 15 and i had to uh actually start doing purchase loans and learn that side of the business and just went from there is there anything that you're you take from your military experience and um how do you apply all of your learning and the the discipline uh the work ethic and the things that uh you learned in the military and apply those to your your current business and the number one thing was actually, so aviation is a lot of numbers, mm-hmm. right? And quick calculations in your head and rounding to do a bunch of calculations quickly. Mm-hmm. And believe it or not, it's worked really well in, uh, in real estate financing as well. Like I'm able to kind of quickly make calculations and figure out ratios and percentages. And that's been a real godsend and understanding the effects of different rates on different things. And that's helped me probably the most, uh, in the, in the whole thing, really. That's awesome. Let's tell our, let's tell our listeners a little bit about the, the, the planes that you, you flew because one of my all time favorites is the C-130, the Hercules. And that was my first duty assignment, at Little Rock Air Force Base. And as a, a logistics guy, I used to go out to the drop zone and, you know, watch those overhead as they, they, they would open up the back doors and do uh, a pallet and CDS drops on the All-American drop zone. And uh, man, I had so much fun. I just I absolutely love the smell of, uh, you know, the engines kicking off on the flight line and the, and the, the whirl of the JP eight and everything else that's burning out there. But you flew, you flew C one thirties. And what did you say that the, the, uh, the, uh, KC one thirty five, the joint rivet or something? RC one thirty five. RC one thirty five. Okay. Tell me a little, tell me a little bit about both airplanes and the, the, the various missions, the different components of it. Yeah. Well, I, I always like to say my number one favorite thing about the air force was I got to see the entire, literally the entire world on the government dime. And Mm -hmm. and that was really neat. Um, so the first eight years active duty, um, I was actually, I was actually a nav too, not a pilot. I meant to correct you earlier, but, um, and hence the numbers thing, right? Yes. Yes. You're, you're a world-class nav. That's what, that's what I meant. Yeah. So, uh, so on RCs, um, that was a reconnaissance airplane and we just did um well collected signals intelligence all over the world literally and so uh, i mean i got to fly around uh, go to alaska europe middle east asia all over asia and and just you know do uh collection efforts in in all those areas on uh various countries throughout the world and then uh once i got out i actually was 
initially I didn't know what the national guard was. And so I was getting out and, um, Lincoln, uh, sorry, Nebraska national guard was standing up a schoolhouse for RCs. And I was a current qualified, uh, instructor and evaluator and, the the commanders standing up that unit just, uh, introduced himself to me and met with me and said, Hey, uh, what's your plans? I'm like, I'm just getting out. And he said, well, have you thought about the national guard? I'm like, I don't even know what that is. And so I thought it was just army guys filling sandbags when there's a flood. Right. Right. So, uh, he's like, no, here's what it is. Like the beauty is it, it, no commitment. You don't cost me anything. Cause I don't have to train you. Um, just try it out. A couple of your buddies are doing, who are getting out right now are doing it. Um, so my buddy, Shannon Yates, another Academy guy, but he was doing it as well. I'm like, all right, might as well. So, uh, I tried that. I actually did like it, but the commute from Denver, I moved to Denver immediately when I got out. So the commute from Denver to, um, Omaha was a little bit much once a month. And I was just driving in my car, right? Eight hour drive. So I had a couple other friends in the Cheyenne, Wyoming, 130 unit and mm-hmm. said, Hey, we could use uh, your help up here. We're a little bit short manned. Um, and that's an hour and a half drive from my house. So I was like, yeah, that sounds a little easier. So yeah. I ended up going to little rock for six months, getting cross trained from RCs to C one thirties and the rest is history. Yeah. Deployed a couple times to Afghanistan and Kuwait with the one thirties. And then, um, Fantastic. kind of started my mortgage career and that's the end of it. And then it got, I retired in 2019. It got as mortgages kind of took off mm-hmm. for me. Um, it got harder and harder to dedicate enough time because flying is kind of a perishable skill. And if you just do it the one day a month, uh, the one weekend a month, it kind of, you get rusty pretty quick. And I finally realized that wasn't much of an asset to the unit anymore, just wow. doing the minimum participation so that can also be a little bit dangerous i would imagine if it's a perishable skill right you don't want to be a a little bit rusty when you're up there flying around on those big planes yeah especially 300 feet on NVGs through the the rocky mountains right so yeah that's that was uh when it just got to a point where it it just didn't make sense anymore I, i decided i either needed to quit mortgages quit the guard or sell some of my children so it's kind of (laughs) Yeah. Pretty easy. Pretty easy decision. That's right. Well, I, I always uh, enjoy chatting with former military guys and you know, especially people that I served with. And of course, you and I were at squadron officer school uh, down in Alabama for a n- number of weeks. And uh, you, you, I was always impressed with you, right? I mean, so I uh, had just a great deal of uh, respect and admiration as you as a, a track athlete at the academy, you know, one of the most prestigious universities in the country to attend. Then of course you were you know serving in a, a great capacity and you know, we had a great uh, a great team down there at Squadron Officer School. It was a very formative time uh, for me in my career, and I've always watched and enjoyed seeing how people have transitioned into the private sector and what they're doing and how they take that that hard work, that discipline, that work ethic, apply it in various uh, skills and trades, and continue to go out and It seems like everyone continues to carry that esprit de corps and that mission of i I, I want to be a part of a team, I want to do good, I want to make have an impact in in my community. Uh, you know, that our core values, I mean, back in the day when you and I were getting in, I know that they've kind of changed these over time, but it was, you know, integrity first, service before self and excellence in all we do. And I've kind of carried that with me throughout the course of my career. And I can see that, in, you know, in how you uh, run and lead your business. I mean, it just, you know, it, as those videos that you're doing, that just kind of comes out. One of the things that I've all often wanted to do is I've wanted to get a group of, um, you know, compatriots and you know business partners and go back down to montgomery alabama and see if we could get into you know one of those that remember that 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 paddock they they had where they uh, we went through all those obstacle courses and you'd have like a couple of minutes and they'd take you out there in the the heat of the day and there would be some just crazy obstacles like it's impossible to get over this thing and they would give you like this little scorecard and you'd have the instructors watching you the the evaluators and you had like two or three minutes to maybe read this little card and it gave you the rules, the rules of engagement. And then a group of us, I forget how many was in our squad and we had what, 10, 15 people. Do you, do you yeah, remember? something like that. And and then you, you'd pick a leader, be like, okay, so-and-so is in charge. And it's like, how, how are we going to, you know, circumnavigate this obstacle? And 
you know, the, the first couple of times we would try it as a, as a team, it was just complete and total failure. And then, you know, we would get, you'd get coached back up and say, Here, hey, you know, this person's not communicating and this person wasn't communicating and they saw what they should have been doing. And I just, I loved that entire en- environment of how, you know, how to, and, and over time, over a couple of weeks, we built a really cool team. We knew what each other's strengths were, what each other's weaknesses were. At the end of that time, you know, we were able to, you know, roll through those obstacle courses like this, right? Do you remember some of that stuff? Oh yeah, I remember. The number one takeaway, that was a leadership reaction course is yes. what you're describing. Yes. Yeah. And uh, the number one takeaway I had from that was you can't have a bunch of chiefs and no Indians. You had to pick a leader and have somebody in charge that made decisions. Yeah. Not that they weren't allowed to take input from the team or uh, use the team's advice, but there, there definitely had to be someone in charge making decisions in a timely manner. Or remember, I remember we timed out on one of the early early ones too. We just mm-hmm. straight up timed out because nobody was taking the helm. Yeah, and, and, the, and the interesting thing is, you know, we're all captains, right? So we're all peers. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, to, to go squadron officer school in person, it's, you kind of, it, it, you're selected to do this and you're absolutely right. And there's been multiple times in my career where I've been working with a team where everybody was like, well, we're, we're all equal. We're all you know, in this together. But at the end of the day, there has to be a decision maker who is okay. Well, this is the person who's the leader. This person's going to take all the information, make a judgment call. It could be right. It could be wrong, but you, you can't all be equal in some of those things. And that's exactly, we, we failed early on on a couple of those courses. And then once we got it dialed in, man, I tell you what, it was so much fun. I, I, I just loved to be able to see how we operated as a unit early on when there was maybe even a little bit of lack of trust. We didn't know each other's strengths and weaknesses, lack of, you know, who's going to lead, who's not going to lead. And then by the end of the course, we knew each other very well. And I'm, I'm sure you had this as you were flying in the various teams that you are a part of. I just love being a part of a well-oiled team where there's a lot of trust. Uh, there's a, a common vision and a common mission uh, in what you're trying to accomplish. I've, you know, in all honesty, since, you know, post-military, since I've left, I've really tried to recreate some of that wherever I've gone just because I miss it so much. Have you been able to do something similar kind of in the private sector and the teams that you lead? Yeah, I'm kind of in it team right now i've got with another uh, naval academy grad so oh, nice. we kind of instantly had that camaraderie and at ci to high i had that shared experience and, and kind of the instantaneous trust too mm-hmm. so he was a naval officer for a bunch of years his last assignment was out here in colorado he ended up uh, separating and then we connected in the mortgage world and uh and have been working together on and off ever since but we just started working together again here uh, back in December. Oh, that's great. What have you, I want to ask you a couple more questions. I know your time's very valuable for you, so I'll be respectful of the, the last few moments that we have together, but I want to maybe get your insight on, in your career, it was so important when we were in the Air Force, the, the core values of the Air Force Academy, right, in terms of just integrity and honesty uh, and building trust with one another. How have you seen that uh, those types of core values? How important is that in the business sector and how you operate with your clients? I would imagine that uh, you building trust and showing yourself as a, a as a person of high character and integrity and being trustworthy and honest is abs- like absolutely essential in your business to be able to win clients and keep clients and to continue to grow business. Right? Oh, hundred percent. It's really what uh, fuels the repeat business and referral business. Right. Uh, my business there are some shady characters like there's some mortgage brokers that are looked at like used car salesmen and to be honest there's some that operate that way right they'll tell people whatever um throw in you know hidden fees or a lot of them about the rate and surprise at the end right and so a lot of people have had negative experiences so i really do think i'm a little bit of a breath of fresh air for people that um that are able to know that I'm, I'm working as a fiduciary mm-hmm. trying to figure out what's in their best interest and give them the right and best mortgage product and mortgage advice and financial advice really in real estate to move yeah. forward. And that's that's been a, a real blessing. I do think it comes through and, and people really, really appreciate it. Yeah. What should be, uh, since you brought that up, what are a few things that people ought to be looking for or asking to ensure they're getting somebody who is telling them the truth, being honest with them, 
and of maybe avoiding some of uh, the individuals who might not uh, be as forthcoming? Yeah. What you really want from your mortgage advisor is options and why those options are the best options for you, like different mortgage products, different down payment options, all those things, or even different structuring, like less or more of a down payment or, or whatever, depending on what your whole plan is. My favorite part of consultation with a client is just listening to their goals, dreams, hopes, aspirations, and try to fit each mortgage and each real estate purchase into their plan, right? Even from the first time home buyer to the seasoned investor. So it, whereas most, if you call some of the rockets and 1-800-SHOPs, it's, it's a kid in a, you know, it's a 22 year old in a cubicle answering the phone all day. That's just going to plug you into a five or 20% down conventional product, lock the rate today. And next, you know, it's just a conveyor belt and they don't care if you ever call them again, you know? Wow. That, it, it's funny. I was going to ask you about a couple of those businesses, but I, that, that was my, my feeling is what they were doing and that you were going to give much more of a concierge level service and really deep dive, understand the person, white glove service, making sure that you understand their needs and all the nuances because th- this is, it's complicated. And it's one of the most uh, important decisions that a person's going to make in their, their career. You want someone who's going to treat you with that type of respect and not just treat you as a number. So I appreciate you highlighting that. Do you see um, AI, you know, you hear uh, people talk about AI changing literally every single industry. I've, I've been talking to doctors. I've been talking to insurance professionals. It seems like any business person I talk to, like there, there's two things. They see areas where it is going to help them and some positive aspects, but they also see some areas where, hey, you know what? This could also be harmful for these segments of the economy or maybe even my business. How do you view AI as... Uh, both of those for your, your specific industry and space. Yeah, I do. Man, I there's so much conflicting info on AI, and I've been trying to read up and, and get smart on it. So, and I don't know where I fall. I definitely think it's a, a force multiplier, mm-hmm. and and definitely can save manpower. And it's going to eliminate some jobs, but so did getting rid of the buggy, buggy whip, right? Like mm-hmm. it's just going to transition, especially in our economy now, our gig economy, which you've mm-hmm. talked about before. Yep. And people find other things or other ways, but I do love the ability to leverage AI, but it, it's definitely not perfect. I mean, I even use it a, a little bit. I don't use it for any kind of mortgage consultation or anything, mm-hmm. but I do use it for some of my social media posts. Like I'll ask uh, chat GBT, like, what are the most commonly asked questions about mortgage? That's where I kind of get my ideas for the mustache mortgage minute. I'll also say, Hey, write a quick one minute summary about this. I'll put the topic in and I never use it verbatim, mm-hmm. but I do use it to get ideas. And then I just tailor it and put it to my own voice or, but I have seen it come to erroneous conclusions. Mm-hmm. When I ask questions, I'm like, Oh, that's not even factually correct. Or that's not, the optimal answer or whatever. So it's, it's still in its infancy and definitely needs improvement. I don't think it's going to take out uh, mortgage lenders anytime soon, but there are definitely some industries that are, that are going to be eliminated. All right. Well, one of my final questions, what are some of the books that you're reading right now to continue to learn and grow and refine your skills? And you've been a a lifelong learner. You're on, you're on that journey. You're constantly getting better. So what, what are the things that you find interesting right now? I just got done with uh, Marcus Aurelius meditations. Uh, Yeah. I started with um, Ryan holiday's books, Uh, you know, uh, so I read those three and then I'm like, man, I think I want to do the source. So I've been working on JP a lot recently. Uh, So I wanted to go to the source manual and that was an impactful book. I really did. I was just amazed at how relevant uh, his message was 2000 some odd years later. Mm-hmm. Right. So th- that was really good. And then, um, Peter Tia's book outlive now that I'm getting older, um, I'm about to hit the half century mark. And, uh, so you definitely start thinking about your mortality and, and how to preserve your youth as much as possible. So I've been on a big health kick lately as well. So, like I said, mostly self-improvement stuff, the most recent business book I read was uh, Richard Milligan's book on digital marketing. Uh, 
that was pretty impactful. And that's actually what got me into the uh, really talk or uh, brought me to start the whole social media and start posting uh, videos for people and just give some value and insight to my industry. Well, that is a book I have not read, so I appreciate the uh, the information there. I'm going to uh, jot that down and order that today. And I tell you what, you have uh, taken great notes, whatever he's teaching, because your mustache mortgage minute is absolutely incredible. I love it. And I want to make sure that all of our listeners go out there. You got to follow JP on LinkedIn. Uh, where else should people be following you if they want to you know, continue to learn, continue to grow and uh, just get great information from you? Yeah. So uh, we have a Instagram page called Mile High Home Loans. Okay. Uh, my wife runs that, uh, so you'll see Liz Seacott out there. You won't see JP, but uh, but all my videos are there as well. And we throw a, a little more, a little bit more content, a little more personal content too. Um, I don't know. Did you see the Mustache Mortgage Minute? My son and my daughter did. I don't know if I saw that one yet. I'm gonna have to go check that one out. Okay, so you so you're now bringing it's a family business. You're bringing the kids into it. I love it. I, I do the same thing for sure. That's it. That's what you, when you hey when you have five or six kids, you got to in, invo- involve them in the family business. Brandy and I do the exact same thing. Yeah, they love it. Uh, we put little fake mustaches on them and and made them give little little bits of advice. So. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, make sure uh, for all of our listeners, make sure you guys go out there and I'll, I'll make a, or put a link in the show notes so you guys can, you know, exactly where to go. And JP, one of the final questions that I've been asking a lot of our guests recently is, you know, there, there's a, we live in interesting times and you and I got involved in some very deep and interesting discussions when we were at squadron officer school, we were talking, you know, not only, uh, there's a lot of things that we talked about as, you know, young captains in the air force, but we talked about global politics and issues of the day. And that's been, you know, a few years ago and the, the world has not gotten, um, you know, less complicated. It's probably gotten more complicated. We've gone through pandemic. We've come out, we've had a little bit of a recession. We've got, you know, challenges in the South China sea. We've got, uh, an open conflict in the Ukraine. And I've just been, and of course, all of that going on, putting pressure on middle-class Americans. And we've got strife and unrest in many ways here in the, uh, in the homeland. And I've just been asking Americans, I'm just say, assume that, you know, President Biden, he calls you to the White House and he gives you the microphone and says, hey, you know what, JP, uh, I, w- I was going to do a State of the Union address, but I'm not going to do it. I'd like you to do it for me. And you've got an open mic, you're on television to talk to the American people. What would you say? How would you, how would you inspire them, encourage them? Um, you know, sometimes we need, there's words of admonishment. Maybe we, we, maybe we need to get our act together as a people and come together. But what, you know, what would you do? What would you say to the American people if you had that opportunity? Man, I would, I think that there's all those other threats you've, listed out there but i really think the number one threat to america is how divisive we've become Mm -hmm. my number one advice i would try to get everybody to listen to is let's focus on the things we all agree on we all believe in Mm -hmm. no matter which side of the political aisle you're on and i know it's gotten so so polarized and and it hurts me to see how polarized and and vitriolic and all the hatred spit between the two sides when in reality i guarantee even people on polar opposites agree on 75 percent of things Mm -hmm. we're all americans we're all humans we all love our friends and family we all love this country Mm -hmm. and if we could just get behind and focus more on what what we agree on and our shared values instead of just highlighting and fighting over the things we don't agree on and also allow people to disagree, you know, agree to disagree. That's gone. There's, there's just less, um, tolerance for people that don't share your exact views and, or isn't in camp A or camp B. Mm -hmm. And that's really the number one thing I would want to address and want the president and really all politicians to address is to just, and lead by example, right? There's some of the most polarized figures in our society are the politicians. And if they could cooperate more and show more civility and more, you know, grace to their fellow man, I think that would help America out a ton. Wow. Wonderfully said. Couldn't, couldn't say anything better than that right there. You know, what's interesting, JP, is that virtually every single person I ask this of 
And and it's not just Americans. I've had Canadians on the program. I just interviewed a friend of mine. He was in Moscow at the time. Uh, Europeans, they all basically have a similar um, thought process. And it, it th- there's so many people who want exactly what you just said. And I think like you uh, very intelligently articulated, which is it starts with us. And yeah, I don't think that the politicians are going to lead. Politicians are great followers, and right. And I think it's up to us as leaders in our own communities. Um, a person like you, with a voice, who's who's out there influencing people, helping people, working in your community, um, creating value, helping folks. But when people stand up and you know are united and do all the various things that you've just said, that's how real change takes place. And so it's encouraging for me to see a friend of mine from so many years ago do, continuing to do such a great job uh, helping Americans, running a phenomenal business there in Colorado. I cannot wait to come out there and see you and your family. And I just appreciate your friendship. I appreciate what you're doing. I appreciate your words of wisdom and uh, keep leading. Uh, we, we were taught in the military, right? You know, to lead from the front. Boots on the ground. Leaders lead from the front. That's exactly what you're doing, and I'm proud of you, brother. All right, thanks, Bob. I really appreciate. I really appreciate the opportunity for the chat to be on your program and get my word out. And uh, all the kind words are really, really appreciated. Well, you're, everyone's got to go out there and, and follow the Mustache Mortgage Minute. I got that right, right? And it's on it's right. LinkedIn and on uh, Instagram. So go out there. Where, where are they going to go on Instagram to find you one more time? Mile High Home Loans on Instagram. Mile High Home Loans. And we'll have both of those in the show notes. And you're going to see a guy with an incredible mustache. Love it. <laughs> JP, thank you so much, buddy. All right. Thanks, Bob. Take care. Today's episode was engineered by Mitch White with graphic and marketing by Tristan Dickey. Special thanks to JP for taking time to educate our listeners today on this very important aspect of the U.S. economy. Make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or wherever you go to listen to your favorite pods. If you like the show, please share this with a friend and give us a review. That's always appreciated. I thank you for taking the time to be with us today, and we look forward to chatting with you once again next week.